Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm in the Score studios, as always, with co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, man. Wow, no no. what up? What's going on? It's early in the morning. You know, we're, we're about to start a new season, I figure. What the we're hell, dealing you know? with a geopolitical crisis. Yeah, so it didn't, it didn't feel like a what up kind of a morning. Understood, um, that's fair. Yeah. Feels like we're maybe a little bit behind on this story, obviously. Like, we're getting to it kind of late here, and um, it's moved so quickly that it just feels like we're almost jumping in while this thing is so far down the road and you know we wanted to get in the studio yesterday and hash this out but i was observing yom kippur and i think <laughs> talking about a fraught geopolitical situation on an empty stomach is never a good idea so happy here we are. belated yom kippur yeah thanks <laughs> um so yeah we can we can jump into this if you want to i mean they they went ahead with the first of these preseason games in china which it seemed for a time yeah like it might not happen. Uh, well, there's like billboards coming down and they're painting over yeah. uh, stuff. And it's not just rocket stuff they're painting over. It's like NBA no, yeah. And stuff. they they canceled media availability before that game. Um, they canceled the the NBA Cares uh, organization was supposed to help. I, it wasn't opening a school. It was it was unveiling something at a school or something. Anyway, the NBA said they're still going to donate computers, I believe, to that school. But um, it's a whole mess. But China canceled the like joint thing they were going to do at that school yeah um it's just crazy like how quickly this thing spiraled out of control and and how we got to where we got to in such a short period of time and for us i mean we did a podcast a week ago and a week later it almost feels like the whole landscape of the nba has changed and this issue that like the problem of doing business with china is not a new thing but i think it it brought it to the forefront in a way that people probably could not have expected um and you know maybe that's a good thing in the sense that you know people who perhaps weren't aware of what it means to to be in bed with china and to be financially intertwined with that country and its regime uh, are thinking about it now and talking about it now so yeah and in terms of the argument of whether to do business with china or not i kind of see both sides of the argument in that Look, in, a, in an ideal world, no one who has democratic values and believes in the importance of human rights and free speech and all that, no one who believes in those things would do business with authoritarian governments like China, obviously. Having said that, it's the real world, and if you're going to take that stand, well, it's like, then... You know, you got to look at your own government, like the country you live in, because they probably do trade with China. You got to look at almost every major big private business in the Western world, in the world in general, does business with China and other countries that have, you know, you could argue even far worse human rights violations under their belt. So, like, it's just such a uh, a tricky road, and it's an unfortunate road, obviously. But, yeah, so I, I did see some people saying, you know, well, the NBA just shouldn't be in China, period. And it's like, okay, I do understand that argument. I also understand their argument that, like, well, how are we any different than any other private business or the own government, like the government for the country you live in? Like, we all do this business and we understand what it's about. Having said that, I do think if the NBA is going to be in China or any place like China, they should be there on their own terms. And what I mean by that is you go in and you understand what, what it means to be doing business in a nation like that. But... Knowing the circumstances and the political climate of a place like that, I feel like you should be prepared for if something like this ever does go down. You have a very vocal player base, executive base, coaches base when it comes to social justice issues. I feel like maybe the NBA should have been more prepared for something like this. At some point, a player, a coach, someone is going to speak out about what's going on in China. And we should be prepared for what's going to happen. It didn't really seem like the NBA was prepared whether like if you look at the first statement they released the second statement adam silver released like things he said since it just didn't seem like anyone was prepared for this and again if you're going to be in a place like china i think you should be there on your own terms knowing full well that something like this might come up and if it does you're prepared for the backlash you're not going to put out a statement that seems like you're kind of groveling cowering and groveling to china and then on the daryl morey front all i'll say is look obviously as Two young people living in the Western world, I think we're both, I can speak for both of us when I say we're both pro-democracy and pro-people's right to protest on behalf of democracy and human rights. 
So all the power to Daryl Morey for firing off that tweet. But again, when I talk about like being prepared, if you're Daryl Morey and you send that tweet because you're, you think of it as like, look, this is what I stand for. I'm prepared for the consequences. I understand everything. And I'm not saying he should have understood how quickly it would become literally an international diplomatic crisis, but he said he's got friends in Hong Kong. Like, he must know the political climate there. I just feel like if you're going to send that tweet because you're you're standing up for what you believe in, that's fine and all the power to you, but then I just feel like you got to be all in with it. You have to be prepared for the blowback from your potentially organization, potentially the NBA, especially from China. And then you just got to live with it. Like, don't delete the tweet. Don't then put out a statement that, you know, maybe the Rockets force you to put out. But again, if you are all in on this, then you should be all in on it. And if the Rockets or the NBA or whoever comes to you and says, oh, this is a problem now, your response should be, well, too bad it's a problem. This is what I believe in. And I think the way Maury has reacted to it, whether by his own choice or not, almost shows that he also wasn't prepared for the ramifications of this tweet. I think it's fairly clear that he wasn't. Right. Uh, and that's fine. And it's it's fine for him to feel like deleting the tweet. And, and he didn't exactly apologize, but he put out you know a Twitter statement meant to assuage, I guess, some tensions that his tweet might have caused, which is fine. Like, if he felt that he had put his job in jeopardy, he had put, like, the NBA's business interests in jeopardy, and felt like it wasn't worth it and and just wanted to pull that down and maybe walk it back a bit, that's okay. Like, he doesn't have some kind of moral obligation to, to stand by what he initially posted. I mean, it took courage for him to post it in the first place, and nobody else in the league has done anything like that. So, And how- even in the aftermath, no one has really, you know... And it's no. fine, like the players and the coaches that have said, we don't know enough to right. comment. Okay, that's fine. But to Maury's credit, even still, no one else has come forward and said we support what he said. And to his credit, he didn't come out and, and apologize for the statement or walk back his support of the protesters. Right. All he said was... Uh, he said a lot, I guess, without really saying anything, which is that I tweeted out you know, uh, an opinion based on one perspective of one very complicated incident and like didn't mean to upset anybody which is about as generic as it gets when it comes to walking something like that back and you know like you said nobody in the aftermath has come out and said anything of the like Adam Silver came out you know on his third try basically and said we absolutely stand with Daryl Morey and his right to free speech and free expression but he didn't mention anything about the Hong Kong protesters and and nobody else has either so I think Maury deserves credit, at least, for being willing to put that out there in the first place. And, and as far as not knowing what kind of a shitstorm it was going to stir up, it was, in my mind, like, it, it seems very innocuous, right? Like, we would see something like that, and it wouldn't even necessarily register because it was a seven-word tweet, and about as generic as it gets when you talk, like, there was no specifics. They didn't call out the Chinese government. Yeah. Like, I can see not fully grasping how quickly that might spiral out of control. But I think, you know, the the NBA and its relationship with China is too far down the road, I think, for them to just completely pull out and not do business with China at all. $4 billion is the estimation of how much money the league generates from China. And a lot of people have have called this hypocrisy and moral cowardice on the NBA's part. And there's an element of truth to that for sure. The NBA has always sort of positioned itself as being the most socially progressive of the North American sports leagues, which is still true, by the way. And this incident, I don't think, invalidates any of the stuff that came before. And, like, whether or not it's hypocritical, like, that doesn't mean that the stuff that the league and its players and its coaches have spoken out about in the past doesn't matter. This doesn't wash that away. Uh, I think we see that they're maybe is a limit to that uh, in terms of how much something might affect their bottom line and obviously you know moving the all-star game out of charlotte or banning donald sterling or having any number of players or coaches speak out against donald trump that stuff hasn't affected their bottom line obviously to nearly the same extent like this is a league that you know its audience generally at least in north america has a very liberal bent it is you know what two-thirds african-american like it makes sense for them to be on the side of, you know, social progress. So, I don't know. I mean, like, there is an element of hypocrisy, but at the same time, Adam Silver has kind of always been about doing right by his players. 
And a big part of that is helping them be as profitable as they can possibly be while they are a part of the league. And part of that is allowing them to, you know, seek endorsement deals in China to and to generate four billion dollars of league revenue in China. Right. And and that affects everybody. So did you see the report about the salary cap last night? I did. What was it like? Ten, there 10 to 15 five, percent? Yeah. I believe it was Keith Smith who reported it, mm-hmm. that five teams he's talked to and five cap experts he's talked to from various teams um, are preparing for like a worst case scenario where the cap number will go down 10 to 15% next season from where it is right now based on the potentially lost revenue in China. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that says it all right there, like, right? Now like it's the, actually affecting the dynamics of the league. Yeah. I mean, if you want to think about it in really practical terms, you know, we've been expecting the cap to not spike, but go up by like, take a pretty healthy jump next year, right? It was supposed to be at about 116, 117 yeah. million, yeah. I think was the projection. And now we're looking at a situation where the cap is probably going to go down. You look at a bunch of these guys who are extension eligible right now and haven't signed extensions yet. I think this makes it significantly less likely that those players do sign extensions because they would be signing them under a cap that is higher than it's now projected to be next season. So you're already seeing the financial ramifications of that. <sighs> like Even- that doesn't that doesn't make it okay that the league responded in the way that it responded. And I think that is the thing that most people took significant umbrage with here because the moral compromise was made a long time ago. Like the NBA and China have been doing big business for years and it's not like the NBA was ignorant of this totalitarian government and what it stood for. You know, the fact that they have put over a million people, mostly Muslims in concentration camps, like, Either the league has just been willfully ignorant of that or they've been willing to look the other way in order to protect their business interests in a massive market. And I also don't want to say like globalization is a bad thing or like it's a bad thing to want to bring the NBA to the rest of the world. And I I just think like, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing now and I'm not saying there isn't good reason for it, but I just think like if the NBA hadn't put out the statement that it put out, where it was essentially using like the language of the Chinese government in saying this this offended citizens all over China and basketball fans all over China when the thing that set it off was a tweet and Twitter is banned in mainland yeah. China. It, this wasn't a, a situation where like the citizenry was up in arms and putting an immense amount of pressure on Chinese businesses to pull their sponsorships from the NBA. Like this decision came from up high. Yeah. So... I think the way that they dealt with it, and especially like Tillman Fertitta right away coming out and distancing himself from Daryl Morey's statement and really just like throwing Morey under the bus. Yeah, well, it's not the first time Tillman Fertitta's thrown someone from his organization under the bus. So there's that. There's Joe Tsai, the new Nets owner, putting out a statement that most people have criticized, rightfully so, because it sounded like half propaganda straight from the Chinese government. And he claimed that he was he knows for a fact all 1.4 billion Chinese people are in you know unified in in his opinion from a basketball perspective you mentioned extension eligible candidates there's teams that were not projected to be tax teams next season that could now be tax teams because of this there are teams that thought they were going to have cap space at least a little bit of it they will now no longer have cap space if this goes the way some of these cap experts project it will go the last thing i'm going to say on the matter is this look I agree with you. It doesn't. This doesn't change the fact that the NBA is still way more progressive than other North American sports leagues, and it doesn't change things that Adam Silver and the league have done leading up to this point when it comes to social progress and social justice. However, I think it's it's just a reminder for every, in case anyone had forgotten or was naive to the fact the NBA is still a private business, and whether you're talking private businesses regular citizenry, yourself, whoever, for the most part, like 99.9% of people, wokeness has its limits when it comes to money in your own pocket. And that's just an unfortunate fact of life, okay? I, I think we'd all like to hope that, you know, in the same situation, we would take a different stand or whatever the case may be. But the fact of the matter is that usually 
wokeness does have its limits and it's when the bottom line of a company is being affected if it's an individual we're talking about it's when money's coming out of your own pocket like those are just the unfortunate realities of the world uh yeah i <laughs> i i can't say otherwise i mean that's sort of the sad reality of this whole situation and there's an element of helplessness to this whole thing and everybody kind of acting like their hands are tied and this is just the the bargain that we've all kind of agreed to make and like you were saying off the top we're all part of this machinery right like the clothes we wear the iphones that we use we're part of it too yeah. and, and we use products that are made in china in you know terrible conditions basically and we probably don't think about that as often as we should so i, I don't think that the story is going to go away anytime soon um I am interested to see where it goes. I'm interested to see if anybody else in the league decides to take up that torch and what would happen if players started speaking out about this and where the line would be drawn. But for now, I'll just say I think the league didn't have to proactively make any decisions regarding how it does business with China. It didn't have to throw Mori under the bus the way that it did. And... You can have that statement out there and stand by, you know, the general manager of one of your 30 teams and say, like, Silver eventually got around to saying, we support Daryl Morey and his right to express his opinion and then let China react however it wants to react. And, and you don't have to, like we said, kowtow to, uh, you know, an authoritarian government. Uh, you can basically stand by your principles that you've, been doing basically for the last few years and it's out of your hands at that point but to you know the sort of show of uh, of like groveling apology that I feel like that initial statement came off as rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and rightfully so from a Rockets perspective I'd say too I, if I'm a Rockets fan I'm a little concerned about Tillman Fertitta's ownership just based on a lot of things. He's been very inconsistent when discussing his commitment to spending into the luxury tax. He, you know, I mentioned, well, we mentioned he, he kind of threw Mori under the bus in this situation. If you remember earlier this year, he publicly spoke about the Mike D'Antoni contract situation and not so encouraging or pleasant terms. Like he just, when you look at the way the Rockets were under Leslie Alexander, ran the team in silence, like didn't really put himself out there. And you look at the way, and I'm not saying an owner putting himself out there always means he's a bad owner, but I'm just getting some bad vibes here. And I'm sure Rockets fans are too. And look, I, you know, good luck to the Rockets this season. They got a couple superstars on the roster, but I would be concerned about the future of this team under Tillman Fertitta because yeah, it's a little Dolan-esque. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, and he's not off to a great start, no. I don't think. One other kind of harrowing thought that I had, and this was something that got brought up on... Um, Slate's Hang Up and Listen podcast, which I thought did a really good job of breaking this whole situation down. But like, where would Ennis Cantor be right now if, say, the NBA was as financially intertwined with Turkey as it is with China? It's, a, it's like, actually a scary thought. You know, would he just be a political prisoner right now? I, and, and I guess this seemed like a flashpoint, and maybe there will be another flashpoint down the road where the NBA really has to make a decision about who it's going to back and what it's going to do. Uh, because, again, like the the preseason games seemingly are going ahead as planned, but I don't think we've heard the end of this by any stretch. I agree with you. I think it, I think it might get messier. All right, I think that's enough of that for now until until the story you know takes another turn. We're going to eventually get in the second half of this podcast. We're going to talk about four title contenders and why we think they can or can't win the championship. It's actually part of a series of features we're doing preseason features looking at the eight teams we think have realistic title uh, aspirations in this wide-open season of parity. And, and so starting Monday, we started with the Bucks. You did that. Uh, I did the Warriors. You did the Jazz. My Sixers piece is going up today. And like I said, it's all about why these eight contenders can and can't win the title. So we're going to talk about four of those contenders today, four of them next week. Uh, before we get to those four, let's quickly kind of bounce around the league in any preseason news and notes we have. First of all, Kyle Lowry. One-year extension. Keeps him in Toronto through 2021. He's going to make $31 million in his age 35 season? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think he's as turning a, 34 this As an year, undersized so. point guard. <laughs> Pretty good piece of business for both sides, I think. I think so, too. Look, Kyle Lowry maybe has one year of all-star level production left in him, and even that might be a stretch, but 
you know, expecting two years out of him, out of that, in terms of thirty-one million dollars worth of value, probably not realistic. But you know, I've argued it. I'll listen to what you have to say as well. But I, I just think if you were gonna keep Kyle Lowry around, the money didn't matter. It was the term, and I think that's why this was such a good piece of business on both ends because. Pay Kyle Lowry whatever he wants next season. The Raptors, when it comes to the salary, like they weren't spending that money probably on free agents anyway. Their big year, like a lot of teams, is going to be 2021. Giannis Antetokounmpo, Bradley Beal, a bunch of guys, superstars, are free agents that summer. And so you were able to keep Kyle Lowry around, keep this franchise icon around, keep him happy. It's a good look around the league if you saw Kyle Lowry's agent's comments. Very happy with the way negotiations went with Masai Ujiri and the Raptors. So... Just a good vibes all around in keeping Lowry paid and and happy, but you also don't dip into that 2021 cap space. I, I just, again, people looked at the number and just saw what Kyle Lowry 31 million dollars. It it did sounds people re- do that? I thought I think no. So like uh, the reaction was generally positive. I guess no? my issue is I I often go on uh, on social media and just like look at what the average person's saying, and that's usually garbage. I I don't care what they're saying, but I just. You know, I think it's interesting to kind of get a, a sense of what like fans are out there saying. And uh, outside of Toronto, it seemed a lot of people were like, well, $31 million for 35-year-old Kyle Lowry. But again, I just don't think the number matters. I think the term mattered and getting him for only one extra year, I think, was perfect. I think anyone who's been paying attention recognizes why this made sense. Right. First of all, like you said, the Raptors are not planning on using their 2020 cap space at least they're not going to be tying that up in any sort of long-term deal so realistically how many players are even going to be on the market that are better than Kyle Lowry in 2020 less than a handful and that's not an exaggeration maybe two yeah it's so try not to vomit when you look at the 2020 free agent class yeah so I 100% agree when you say that the money is not the issue the term was the issue they keep that 2021 cap sheet pretty clear and honestly, you know, even baking in some projected decline from Lowry over the next couple of seasons, having him on the roster in 2020-2021 is going to make the Raptors better that season than they would have been without him. And, um, <clears throat> you know, from that perspective, I think this absolutely makes sense because you know, we've talked about this so many times before. Like, if you want to go into a summer and pitch prospective star free agents, it really helps to have a strong infrastructure in place. And and coming off a successful season, I think, makes your pitch that much more appealing than it would be if you were coming off an unsuccessful season. I think Lowry helps the Raptors in terms of those ambitions, and he's going to make them better than they would have been without him. So having him on board, definitely a good idea, even aside from the optics of the situation, which I agree are quite positive. And for Lowry himself... We talked about this a bit with Draymond Green and his decision to forego becoming a free agent in 2020 where he might have headlined a really weak class and thus been able to get himself paid, possibly something close to a max deal. But in terms of the teams that actually have cap space next summer, you're limiting your options quite a bit. And I don't think any of those teams are particularly good fits for an aging, hyper-competitive point guard that's going to be looking to win a championship. So for Lowry, he gets a balloon payment basically where the lack of term I think is going to be made up for by the fact that he is getting that huge sum in the one year that he signed it for and is going to get a chance to re-enter the market in 2021 when the league is going to be flush with cap space and he'll be able to get you know one last sizable deal I think before his career is over yeah and you know even at this stage of his career the the one thing that has remained consistent during Kyle Lowry's time in Toronto is that when Kyle Lowry's on the floor, the Raptors are pretty darn good. Yeah. And that's important going into what they hope is a very big summer in 2021 that potentially gets them right back in in the championship mix. I also wonder, I'm not saying the Raptors are going to try and trade Lowry either this season or next, but do you think that this makes him more or less tradable than he would have been on an expiring deal? It's so hard to say right now because we kind of got to, like if he comes out of the gates, balls to the wall, you know, guns blazing, and and, and looks like all-star Kyle Lowry again, then you probably makes him more, you know, like a, a more enticing asset, right? Because teams can now get a year and a half of him or whatever it is. And still keep their cap sheet exactly, clean in 2020. for 2021. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I don't know, like maybe teams don't want to take on 
that kind of money in an aging player that doesn't have the same legacy value to their franchise as right. just the Raptors. And given what we talked about, where like teams don't even know now, is the cap going to go down next year because of this China situation? Like, I think all that factors into the equation where yep. it may, he, he could play well and teams still might not want to take that risk on. And to that point, uh, you know, this Pascal Siakam potential extension that has been looming out there and Shams Charania reported that Siakam and his agent were looking for a max deal. I think that the Raptors are just going to forego that because, as I've said many times before, I I don't entirely see the point, unless it's just an absolute lock that this guy is going to be a franchise player. I don't necessarily see the purpose in maxing a guy out before letting him get to a restricted free agency. If you're going to max him anyway, you might as well wait. And in the Raptors' case, Siakam's got that $7 million cap hold that's going to allow them some flexibility next summer, whereas... If they max him out now, on top of not getting any kind of a discount and just still having the option to max him out next summer, they're going to have his bloated salary on the books rather than that $7 million cap hold. And I don't know what they're going to do in the summer of 2020. It might be nothing, but it might be something. And maybe it's making a trade where they take back a bad contract and get an asset for their troubles. Like Just having that cap space is always useful. And now having another $31 million for Lowry on the books, I think makes it that much less likely that the Siakam extension gets done. You know, to say nothing of the potential cap ramifications of this China fiasco. Let's quickly touch on the preseason. The last few days I've started to watch more and and tried to catch up with stuff I've missed. James Harden and Giannis Antetokounmpo look like they're in midseason form and should probably just be taken off the court for the rest of the preseason because they both look like they're ready to compete for another MVP award. Zion Williamson, no hyperbole. It's preseason, I understand. Might be the third best player in the preseason right now. Like if you, it's... it's, Shot 12 for 13 last night. It is pretty insane to watch a 19-year-old make it look so easy out there and I think maybe people that didn't watch a lot of Zion in college just think of him as this like highlight machine who's going to throw down dunks and do all this and play above the rim. And he's going to do a lot of that. But like you watch him like break guys down off the dribble, go behind his back. You know, he's got moves inside. It's not like he's just running and jumping. Like, there is a lot of basketball skill there that I think almost gets overshadowed by the fact that he's this freak athlete that everyone watches on Instagram. Yeah, a few things uh, have stood out to me in his first couple of preseason games. One is, I mean, the explosiveness we expected to be there, but the thing that has really impressed me is just how quickly he's able to gather steam after catching the ball. And I was worried about sort of what the Pelicans were going to do with him in the half court, but he has shown a really uncanny knack for just finding pockets of space and giving himself a bit of a running head start before he catches the ball. So by the time he catches it, he's already obviously not going full freight, but like you see that guy coming at you and he's already taken a couple steps and started to accelerate. There's not a whole lot that you can do. And I think the body control that he shows where he's able to ramp up to that speed, but then also finish at the rim. And, and he's shown like a really nice touch, I think, around the basket. He's also made some very nice passes, I think, and uh, has proven himself to be quite a good and astute cutter, which is something that the Pelicans are really going to need because he is going to be playing off the ball a lot given the number of on-ball guys that the Pelicans have on that team. Uh, So that's really important, and obviously he's just been an absolute monster in transition and semi-transition. The one thing I'll say, I mean... Like we said, he was 12 of 13 last night and scored 29 points in 27 minutes. He was also a minus 18 in the game. <laughs> to me, that just speaks to the fact that that starting lineup is not really optimal. And I think come regular season, they ought to bump Redick into the starting lineup in favor of probably Lonzo. But realistically, like they could play Lonzo at the three. He's big enough, I think, to guard threes and... You know, having him there with Redick, Redick's not going to dominate the ball, so Lonzo can still handle it a decent amount. Maybe Ingram's the guy you take out of the starting lineup and have him captaining bench units. Uh, But one one of Ingram or Ball, I think, needs to be moved to the bench in favor of Redick just to open things up, because I don't think it's a great fit, um, those five guys that they're running in the starting lineup right now. Not sure if you saw any of R.J. Barrett a couple nights ago. Looked really good. 17 points on 6-13 shooting, made a couple threes. 
Grabbed seven rebounds. Uh, also played 39 minutes, which <laughs> is okay, David Fisdale. Uh, but the real story from that Knicks game was Marcus Morris swinging his elbow at Justin Anderson's face and then smashing him on the head with the ball. Did you see that? I did, yes. Yeah, got ejected for it. Remember, Knicks fans, your offseason went exactly according to plan, <laughs> all right? That's, that's the kind of veteran mentorship you're going to have around for R.J. Barrett this year. Other than making fun of the Knicks or any thoughts on RJ, any, you got any other preseason observations? Um, I've watched a bit of Markel Fultz just because I'm interested nice. to see what he is going to do this season, what he looks like with a change of scenery. And it's kind of been about what I expected. Some good, some bad. You know, the jump shot still isn't really there. His release is hella Nine slow. of 28 from the field in three yeah. preseason So games. he does look comfortable. Like, I think there's less of a hitch in his shot than there used to be. And he does look comfortable when he gets into kind of that 10 or 12-foot range. He goes to that turnaround jumper. And, you know, once he can sort of get to the dotted line, he can create a little bit of space and get that shot off. And it's been reasonably effective. The range isn't there. But he can contribute in other ways. And I think without having that shooting range, I don't know that he's going to be a starting point guard. But as a backup point guard, he's looked pretty good. Like, he definitely has the tools to be a solid defender. He's good in transition. Uh, and he had one play that jumped out to me against the Pistons when he stripped, I think it was Christian Wood, and then pulled up behind the back dribble to avoid a defender. Basically went one-on-two in transition and just muscled both guys out of the way and dunked the ball. And that just sort of popped off the screen. It was pretty impressive. And, like, physically... Again, like, he's toolsy, he's got size, uh, he's athletic. Like, he can certainly make it work in terms of being a, a positive contributor off of the bench. But as far as what I've seen so far, I feel like that is where it stops, at least for this coming season. Uh, and as long as that jumper is still a work in progress. only other preseason thing I wanted to note is I thought it was funny that the Lakers, after Anthony Davis's debut, and he had, like, five dunks in five minutes in the first quarter, they tweeted out, this is a warning or consider this a warning NBA and then the Bucks consider this a preseason yeah win. <laughs> following their win put that up and I just thought it was funny that we're at a point in NBA history where the Los Angeles freaking Lakers with LeBron James were at such a low point that they are that amped up about a preseason game and then the Milwaukee Bucks who have spent most of our life being the Milwaukee Bucks are like the older brother in the room of the Lakers being like, Matt chill, it's the preseason. I just thought that was funny. I love the NBA. Yeah. Um, a couple other really brief notes. One, I think Siakam has looked very comfortable running the Raptors offense. Yeah. He's looked outstanding so far. And the Spurs, and again, like I said with the Pelicans, I don't know if these starting lineups are going to hold when the regular season actually starts. But the Spurs started four non-shooters uh, in Pirtle, Aldridge, DeRozan, and DeJounte Murray, who based on the early sample, is still a non-shooter. And they had a game in which they attempted 13 three-pointers in the year 2019. I think I had some hope that Popovich was maybe going to be willing to embrace modernity in the way that he hasn't like the last couple of years. And that doesn't seem to be the case. And granted, the Spurs had, I think, the sixth best offense in the league last year. So... They'll find ways around their lack of shooting, but I don't think that they can start those four guys together. No, I don't think they can. But the one, the counter to that I'll say is, in Greg Popovich's defense, the roster that has been given to him doesn't... I'm all for modern basketball and, you know, threes and free throws and getting to the rim, but when you have the roster that the Spurs have, like, there isn't a lot of shooting. So, I, like, I don't know, do you want... DeJounte Murray and DeMar DeRozan taking more threes than they are. How many more threes can they really take with that roster? And then the other thing I'll say is Greg Popovich, for as old school as he is in some ways, his Spurs teams were jacking threes and playing a very modern brand of basketball five, six years ago when the roster was a lot yeah. more suited no, to No, he's it. always tailored his system to his personnel. Right. I think that's something that everybody appreciates and respects about Pop. But I would say probably moving Pirtle to the bench, starting Aldridge at the five and bumping Derek White into the starting lineup would be a start. Or maybe even Bryn Forbes and you, and you move DeRozan to the three. I just I don't think it's tenable to continue doing what they've been doing. <laughs> What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. 
Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL, and the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. All right, four contenders. Let's talk about them. We'll get to the other four next week. Let's start with the team you wrote about on Monday, the Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah, I think this might be the least interesting one to talk about just because we know almost everything there is to know about this team. It's mostly unchanged from last season. They're going to play, I think, the same style at both ends of the floor. The personnel is almost identical, and obviously they lost Brogdon, which we can talk about in a bit. But we know what the championship formula looks like for this team. Uh, It starts with Giannis, who I believe is the best player in the NBA right now. He is a defensive system unto himself, and I think what makes him so incredible is just the versatility of his defensive game. The fact that he can smother anybody one-on-one. He is an unbelievable help defender, whether that means kind of stunting into the lane, like being a rover who gets his hand in passing lanes, uh, a rim protector. He can basically do anything at the defensive end of the floor. And I picked him actually, you know, we're not going to do this until next week, but uh, I picked him to win defensive player of the year. That's great. No one's listening next week now. (laughs) And, And he could absolutely win MVP again. Like it's just when you have a player like that, especially given the strides that he's made in terms of his, his playmaking, it is just really easy to construct an extremely successful basketball team. And and the formula that the Bucks had last season where they surround him with shooters and guys who can defend the perimeter and funnel ball handlers toward the rim where either he or Brooke Lopez will be waiting. I just expect them to be exceptional at both ends of the floor. And I mean, we can we can talk about sort of what this looks like in the playoffs and how it fizzled for them in last year's playoffs. But if I had to pick a team that I thought was the safest bet to finish with the NBA's best regular season record, I think it'd be the Bucks. Look, I think Giannis, obviously, in the conversation for best player alive, one of the guys capable of winning both MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. Joel Embiid's probably also in that conversation. The secondary talent doesn't concern me as much, again, in a league that, you know, there aren't any super teams out there. No one's rolling three superstars. And if you've got potentially the best player alive and then your next couple options are Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe in this NBA in this climate that might be enough to win the title the issue for me isn't so much just that they don't have a secondary superstar or anything like that it's more so that I don't want to say you can't be the best player alive without knowing how to shoot in in the modern game but it is pretty damn hard and we saw what the Raptors did to Giannis in the playoffs last year granted that was with Kawhi Leonard and only one team has Kawhi Leonard but there are excellent perimeter defenders out there if teams pack the paint against Giannis if you know, a Kawhi-like player, whether it's Kawhi himself in a potential finals matchup, whatever the case may be, is just put on Giannis. And one of Eric Bledsoe or Chris Middleton disappears in the playoffs. The way Eric Bledsoe did in that series against the Raptors. And all of a sudden, the Bucks are in a lot of trouble. And even their shooting, like they had this phenomenal shooting season last year. And I fully expect they'll continue to shoot when given the opportunity in Mike Budenholzer's system. Like, I don't know, is Brooke Lopez going to shoot? The way he did last year, I, I don't know. Or is he going to shoot like he shot during the World Cup? Exactly. Like, I, I just, I think they're pretty foolproof in the regular season. And I agree with you. I think they probably end up with the number one overall seed in the NBA again. But I just don't know if Giannis has enough counters yet, has enough shooting yet to overcome playoff defenses. I still want to see Mike Budenholzer make an in-series adjustment before it's too late instead of waiting until it's too late. Like, there are still questions I have about this roster in the postseason that... I want to start with playing Giannis 40 minutes a game. Exactly. (laughs) In the conference freaking finals. Like, that, there are still too many questions I have about... Not even necessarily about this roster, but just about, like, Giannis and Budenholzer and everything coming together in the postseason. And unfortunately, we just won't have the answers to those questions until at least April. Well, we can kind of look for indicators, I think, right? And one thing that I felt like got exposed in that series against the Raptors was the sort of lack of diversity in Milwaukee's offense. Like, they really, and, you know, rightfully so, it was extremely successful during the regular season 
just used Giannis as a battering ram to bust through the first line of defense, collapse the rest of the defense, and in a lot of cases still finish at the rim despite having two or three guys draped all over him. Or if not, just being able to sling passes out to open and extremely willing three-point shooters. The Raptors were able to counter that with, you know, first of all, putting Kawhi on Giannis, basically having somebody who could make it difficult for him at the point of attack, and then if he busted through, having somebody ready to meet him at the rim, sending aggressive double teams from the blind side, and like swarming him and just making things really, really difficult. And the Bucks offensively just didn't have enough counters to that. I don't think they had a lot of faith in their pick-and-roll game. And I'd worry about that again, just because, especially losing Brogdon, who is an incredible off-the-catch attacker um, and also an amazing spot-up shooter, was one of the rare guys on that team who could run a pick-and-roll while presenting the threat of a pull-up jump shot. And I think now Middleton is really the only guy who can do that. And that would worry me a bit. And, you know, so the loss of Brogdon, I think makes them worse, which would just really frustrate me if I was a Bucks fan because they were so close last year. And to let a guy like that walk when you are that close just has to be super frustrating when there's no other reason other than trying to save ownership a bit of money. But they did acquire some picks, including a first-rounder in that sign-and-trade. So maybe that gives them some flexibility to make an in-season trade. And if they were going to do that, I would target an upgrade in the backcourt because suddenly, like, they're looking a little bit flimsy there, right? Like, Eric Bledsoe has to be considered a postseason flight risk at this point in time, right? And then you've got, like, Kyle Korver, who I don't think is really going to be a factor in the spring. He's going to be 39 years old. And uh, for as valuable as the shooting he provides can be, I just don't think he's going to be able to hang defensively in the highest leverage moments. You have Wes Matthews, who can still shoot and passably defend, but has been trending in the wrong direction for a few years now and might be on his last legs. Then it's like Sterling Brown, Pat Connaughton. Like, I would probably be looking to upgrade the backcourt if they have an opportunity to do so. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, as we've discussed before, things can go south. I mean, they can go north, too. But they can go south very quickly, and things change very quickly in the NBA. And the Bucks can in the span of like a year and a half go from being this surprise one seed last year to being a disappointing playoff team two years in a row and now there's questions about Giannis's future it just it happens that quickly and so whether it's an upgrade in the backcourt whether it's Giannis developing his game to be a little more postseason proof whether it's coach Bud understanding the urgency with which he has to adjust in the middle of a playoff series something's got to give here because they while it seems like you know Giannis is going to be there forever and they're going to be contenders for as long as he's there no guarantees we could be talking about him not signing an extension a year from now so it's amazing how quickly it went from them being this feel-good breakthrough story with not really a whole lot to lose and obviously, like, I think it, it qualified as a letdown that they didn't make the finals last year, especially after going up 2-0 in the conference finals and having the regular season they had. But it really didn't feel do or die for them last year. And suddenly they are, like, under the gun. And they're going to have to turn down a lot of the noise that's going to be swirling around them all season about Giannis and his potential Supermax extension and potential looming free agency. Uh there's a lot of pressure on the rest of the roster to rise to the occasion, and I just don't know if I would trust the rest of the roster to do that. I feel like we're going to talk about Philly as well in this episode. I, I almost feel like we should talk about these two teams in conjunction because so long as they both stay healthy, I think they're the only teams that can realistically beat each other in the Eastern Conference. So to me, the Bucks, at least their finals prospects hinge on how they match up with the Sixers and I think that's another point of concern for Milwaukee is at least at the defensive end of the floor I think the Sixers match up with them very well the Sixers are just too big for them I think well they have the personnel to do to them basically exactly what Toronto did to them last season right which is you have a guy up top who can really bother Giannis whether that is Horford or Ben Simmons I mean even Josh Richardson one thing people forget about that Raptors Sixers series last year because of all the great moments Kawhi had in it is that there were times when the Sixers put Ben Simmons on Kawhi and really frustrated like Ben Simmons is an elite defender. an elite defender yeah. at multiple positions and and is kind of the perfect type of defender to disrupt a guy like Giannis right you think about that you have somebody and, and you can sort of build a wall the way that the Raptors did and make it tough for Giannis to break through and just basically have him run into three guys who are waiting for him 
at the free throw line or free throw line extended anytime he tries to make a drive. Anytime he tries to spin, there's somebody there digging, ready to steal the ball from him. There's double teams coming. And if he breaks through, there's Joel Embiid waiting at the rim. I think they can really frustrate Milwaukee if the Bucks don't introduce a little bit more variability into their offense. So that would concern me if I was the Bucks. And, you know, from the Sixers' perspective, we've talked about this so many times. I have no concerns about how good they're going to be defensively in the regular season or the playoffs. I think they'll have the number one defense. Entirely possible. Like, based on just on paper, their personnel, they should. Right? Ben Simmons, Josh Richardson, Al Horford. Uh, Al Horford, Tobias Harris is like the one defensive weak spot in there, and Joel Embiid. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty scary. Insanely and, scary defensively. And this probably goes without saying, but like if they had Al Horford last year, or anybody even in the realm of Al Horford uh, to basically soak up center minutes when Joel Embiid was not on the floor, I think they would have blown the Raptors away. Like They were a plus 90 in that seven-game series with Embiid on the floor and got absolutely destroyed when he was on the bench because they had no good backup bigs. And now they have Al Horford, who is going to play with Embiid some, but who is also going to be staggered and basically be playing center when Embiid's on the bench, and that's a pretty good option to have. You talk about their plus-minus with Embiid on and off in that entire series. Just look at Game 7. The Raptors outscored the Sixers by 12 points in, in less than th- less than three minutes with Joel Embiid on the bench in a game that they lost by two at the buzzer. Now, okay, let's talk Sixers. So I wrote the Sixers piece about, you know, why they will or won't win the title. It goes up today. Why I think they can win, I I, I just mentioned a lot of them. Size. You know, this isn't slow, lumbering size that doesn't fit the modern NBA. They're the biggest team in the NBA, the biggest starting lineup. The average size of their starting lineup is like 6'9 plus. The shortest guy in their starting lineup is Josh Richardson, who's like 6'5 and a half. They are defensively versatile. Again, we're not talking about like plotting big guys here. Al Horford, versatile defensively. Ben Simmons basically can guard four positions. Josh Richardson is like a nice 3 and D piece for them. Tobias Harris, like I said, the only defensive weak spot. I think they're well coached by Brett Brown. They have star power, insane amount of talent. All that's going for them. Now, the reasons why they won't win, we haven't mentioned their bench. Their starting lineup's insanely good. Probably the best starting lineup in the league. Probably the best defense in the league. Their best reserves are Mike Scott and James Ennis. And say what you will about the postseason being about your top talent, which it absolutely is. You need something on your bench. And you just go down the long list, you know, in the history of NBA champions and find me a champion whose sixth and seventh men were as bad as Mike Scott and James. Now, they're not bad players. They're solid rotation reserves, you know, who have their values. But that's not the traditional sixth and seventh man quality of a championship team. And that lack of depth... It just all kind of snowballs in. Like, we're talking about the reliance on Joel Embiid. Did they address how reliant they are on Joel Embiid or their depth issues? To me, no. Now, Al Horford, sure, can anchor the team as a big man when Joel Embiid sits in a way that last year's reserve bigs or other bigs couldn't. But Joel Embiid is such a unique guy. Like, Al Horford can't replicate the sheer force that Joel Embiid exerts on the game. And maybe no but one nobody, can. Nobody exactly. coming off the Sixers bench is going to do that. that I understand really that, but I, I just, I still think they're way too reliant on Joel Embiid. Losing Jimmy Butler in that regard is so huge because we saw in the playoffs when Joel Embiid was sick and quite frankly, Tobias Harris looked scared to do anything offensively. Jimmy Butler's the one that put that team on his back and dragged them to the final buzzer against the eventual champions. Jimmy Butler's gone. And Joel Embiid, whether it's, you know, his health history, his conditioning, whatever it is, like you can't rely on Joel Embiid. He's never played 65 games in a season. There's just going to be, I think, too many moments in the season, in the playoffs, where this over-reliance on Joel Embiid and the lack of a like clear-cut number two postseason score is going to come back to bite them. I think that there are a couple guys who might be able to help their bench. Uh, Matisse Thibel is one who um, a lot of people are very high on, especially defensively. And if he can knock down threes at a sort of passable rate, then I think he could be a really valuable piece for them. Zaire Smith is another one, just a freakish athlete who missed all of his rookie season due to some really unfortunate and freakish circumstances. Uh, he could be re- uh, like ready to contribute. Um, they got Howell Neto, who I think is better than any point guard they had coming off of their bench last year. 
the big concern with me is just off the dribble creation. They don't have a traditional point guard in their starting lineup. Um, and I understand the game is basically positionless now, and you can call Ben Simmons a point guard. I just don't see him that way because outside of you know the transition game, I, I don't think he can effectively run the offense in the half court, uh, obviously because of his lack of a jump shot, although he did hit a three in a preseason game against a Chinese team. But, you know, at the end of games, Brett Brown, and, and this is something actually we posited when we talked about the Sixers in our Burning Questions podcast, I said, you know, maybe Joel Embiid is the answer. And, and in close games, in the final few minutes, maybe they just run their offense through Embiid in the post. And he's that dominant that that can still be effective. And Brett Brown basically came out and said the same thing. He's like, Embiid is going to be our go-to guy. That's how we're going to run our offense. He's got to be better than he's been at the past in the past when he has the ball in the post. Uh, he's been an effective post scorer, but he has also been a turnover machine. He has not always dealt with double teams particularly well. His passing, I think, has improved, but still needs to be better. And the spacing around him, I think, needs to be better. And that's where we get into questions of, you know, what is Ben Simmons going to be doing when the offense is being run through Embiid in the post? And are they going to have enough shooting around him? I mean, they have Tobias Harris. They have Josh Richardson, who's a solid shooter. Horford, for a big man, is a pretty good floor spacer, but on the whole is basically a league average three-point shooter. So I have a lot of questions about how that's going to look and whether they're going to be able to generate enough points and whether specifically their crunch time offense is going to be able to get over the finish line given the fact that they just don't have that sort of dynamic half-court off-the-dribble creator, uh, which is obviously what they lost in Jimmy Butler. Yeah, and kind of the way I ended the piece today was that while I, I think they're obviously talented enough and good enough defensively to compete for a title, if you look at the off-seasons going into an eventual championship season, they're usually about a team answering questions that we had about their roster, not creating more of them. And I just feel like the Sixers didn't really answer the questions that I had for them coming in if they were going to be a contender. Yeah, so let's kind of lay our cards on the table. If you had to pick now between the Sixers and the Bucks in a playoff series, which one of those teams are you going with? Sixers. <sighs> I think I'd have to as well. Yeah. But it's close. I, it really is. And I think... You know, we've repeated it ad, ad nauseum, but like these are really the only two teams in the yeah. East I think have a chance of winning the title. So, uh, shall we move over to the West? Yeah, let's let's talk Warriors. In terms of why I think they can compete for a title, it's pretty simple. They've got Stephen Curry to start, and the backbone of any contender is that kind of transcendent talent who, on any given night, could be the best player in the world. Steph is that guy. Draymond Green, when he plays with the urgency that he plays with in the postseason. Or even that he showed in like the last quarter of last regular season, that guy is still an absolute two-way game changer, a monster. You know, as good as the pick and roll with Steph Curry and Kevin Durant was, that you know, the Warriors would only pull out when they needed to. That was by far the deadliest action in the league. Don't sleep on the fact that a Steph Curry Draymond Green pick and roll has been, you know, as flawless a play as there has been in the NBA the last half decade. Like Steph can obviously punish you with his shooting if he dumps it off to Draymond because he's trapped. Draymond can pick you apart on the short roll. Offensively. Those two guys, under Steve Kerr, everything should be fine. You add D'Angelo Russell in the mix. You know, it's another off-the-dribble creator. It's a guy that can turn Steph Curry into an off-ball threat. Everything's golden. You get Klay Thompson back. You know, you're in a playoff position, and you get Klay Thompson back, and you roll in into the playoffs with Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Klay Thompson, D'Angelo Russell. Like, tell me that team's not a championship contender. Having said all that... There's no guarantee Klay Thompson plays a minute of NBA basketball this season, okay? Like, the guy suffered one of the most catastrophic injuries a basketball player can suffer in June. That's one. I've voiced my concerns about D'Angelo Russell before. Not the most efficient pick-and-roll player. Sure, playing with Steph can help that, but I'm not convinced he's the answer to what may ail the Warriors without Klay Thompson. Draymond Green. I'm as big a fan of Draymond Green's game as anyone. I think maybe the reason he's turned up the urgency later in the season is because maybe just at this stage he can no longer play balls to the wall October through April and then still have enough left in the tank for May and June but the problem is with the Warriors with as vulnerable as they are without Durant and Clay to start the year I don't think they can afford anything less than peak Draymond Green from October to April so there's quite the rock and a hard place dilemma there and then you look at Steph if you just look at history he's probably gonna miss at least like 10 to 15 games in a season and that can affect so many things seeding and all that so I just think 
for as great as this team can be in a best-case scenario, best-case scenarios rarely play out in the NBA or in any sport. And the worst-case scenario for the Warriors can actually get pretty ugly when you're talking about a team that to start the season, no lie, look at this roster. Their fourth and fifth best players are probably Kevon Looney and Willie, Willie Cauley-Stein. <laughs> like, uh, it gets pretty ugly pretty fast. It's you want to talk about bad benches. Oh, no depth whatsoever. Not bad benches. We can't even put a fourth and fifth guy of like starter quality in here unless right. you consider Looney that. So, I mean, I do consider Looney that, but their situation on the wing is dire. Um, and especially until Clay comes back and uh, until we see what he looks like when he comes back, I have major concerns about how they're going to fill, you know, 48 minutes at the three. And who is even going to start? At the three, like I, it, it's tough to picture their defense being even league average. They no longer really have the option to go with Draymond at the five because they don't have the forwards to fill in at the three and four. I am not so concerned about the Curry D'Angelo fit offensively, and I think you know having D'Angelo be able to run the offense when Curry's on the bench is uh, a luxury they haven't really had in the past. Offensively, I don't really have any concerns. I expect them to be top five. Defensively. I think it's going to be a real struggle. Um, and I think, you know, if we're talking about the eight contenders that we have chosen for this exercise, I would probably put the Warriors as the least likely to actually win the title. I think they need the most number of things to go right in order for that to happen. That obviously starts with Clay. He has to come back, and he has to be the player that he was when he got injured when he does come back. If he does, I agree. Like, all bets are off. And especially, th this D'Angelo thing is really interesting because if the fit works out better than we expect, and if he's playing well, then maybe they want to keep him around. And if it doesn't, they're probably going to want to trade him, but then what is his trade value really going to be? And so I'm not really sure how that works out because ultimately I think they need him to play well enough to boost his trade value. But then if he does that, why would they want to trade him? Um, I guess for me, I, I think they should want to because it would ba better balance their roster. And the guy I keep throwing out is Robert Covington because I know the Timberwolves badly wanted D'Angelo Russell. And I think Covington would just be an awesome fit on this Warriors team. But I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if the Wolves would be willing to do that. I don't know if the Warriors would be willing to do that given you know that they gave up a pair of first-round picks to get D'Angelo and Andre Iguodala. But Covington's the kind of guy they need, a guy who can defend twos, threes, or fours, uh, a guy who doesn't need the ball in his hands, uh, is a quite a solid spot-up shooter. I just think he'd be a seamless fit, or somebody like that, a 3-and-D wing who can guard up a position if need be. I think that with you know Clay coming back in somewhat resembling the shape that he was in when he got injured would position them pretty well to make a run at this thing but I just think and I will piggyback on what you were saying like I think they need close to 100% effort from both Steph and Draymond on a consistent night-to-night -night basis in the regular season in order to get into the playoffs can those guys do that and still have something left yeah. after spring rolls around? playing into June the last five years yeah Another thing I'm realizing, just looking at this Warriors roster on Basketball Reference, talking about the globalization of basketball and just how much international talent there is in the league right now, you know how many non-American players the Warriors have on their team? It's like a trick question. Are you about to tell me it's zero? It's one. Wow. It's Alan Smilagic, the <laughs> rookie that they drafted right. this year. The rest of them are all American. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue to a team with a lot of international flavor. The Utah Jazz, they're the fourth team we're going to, the fourth and last team we're going to talk about today in our contender series. You wrote about the Jazz. Talk to me. I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear the Jazz being placed in this contender category. Be. Well, the reason that they would be, I think, is just because teams like this without a top 10 or even top 15 player, uh, you could probably put Gobert in the top 15, but he's sort of an unconventional top 15 player in that the vast majority of his value is derived at the defensive end of the floor. Without a sort of silver bullet superstar who can carry you in the playoffs, teams like this just don't tend to win championships, even in a year where the field is a little bit more balanced and wide open. You're still talking about having to go up against teams that have LeBron James and Anthony Davis or Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. The Jazz are very balanced. They're very deep. They're very strong in the defensive side of the ball. Is that enough? 
And I don't know the answer, but I think they definitely deserve to be in this conversation because, first of all, they were really good last year. Better than their record indicated. Better than that first round series against the Rockets indicated. Second in defensive efficiency. Fourth in net rating. And I think they addressed a lot of their biggest concerns. For one thing, they were one of the highest turnover teams in the league last year. Mike Conley coming in, historically one of the lowest turnover point guards in the game. He replaces Rubio, and I don't think you lose anything at the defensive end by making that swap. At the point of attack, I think Conley is every bit as good as Rubio is. But at the same time, you have a guy who, when he's playing off of the ball, is going to be able to space the floor. And when playoff defenses are trying to hit you with switches and force you into isolation ball, I think Conley is a lot better at playing that style of basketball than Rubio is. I think it's going to take a lot of pressure off of Donovan Mitchell's shoulders. I think, you know, you throw Bogdanovich into the mix, and now you have a starting lineup where you have four guys who can all shoot and all make plays off of the bounce. And whether it is Mitchell or Conley running that pick and roll with Gobert, they're going to be flanked by three elite or borderline elite shooters, whether it's one of Mitchell or Conley playing off of the ball. Or, you know, and then you have Ingles and Bogdanovich as well, guys who both have been at points in their careers mid 40% three point shooters, and guys who also are very solid secondary creators if it comes to that. So I think the Jazz could be a deadly pick and roll team. And even without Bogdanovich and Conley, they were 14th in offense last year. I think they could easily jump into the top 10. I expect them to be top five defensively once again. They'll be top 10 on both ends of the court this year. So I see them as being a team that's going to rack up a lot of regular season wins. The playoffs are where the questions are going to come, but I think they're way better equipped to deal with playoff defenses than they were last year. Yeah, here's what I'll say about the Jazz. I think them and the Nuggets, out of all the quasi-contenders, contenders, whatever you want to call them, I think Utah and Denver are the most complete, balanced teams of those contenders. I would give the Nuggets the edge over the Jazz because I think their best player is better than anyone on Utah. The Jazz are great. Like, a starting lineup of Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, Bojan Bogdanovich, Joe Ingles, and Rudy Gobert is phenomenal. Few, if any, weaknesses to exploit. Great on both ends of the court. They roll 10 deep. Everyone loves Quinn Snyder. Great crowd if they get home court advantage. Like, so many things are going right for them. And yet, as you mentioned, even in this season where it seems wide open and there's no super teams, I don't care if the Jazz finish 11 games ahead of one of the, or both of the LA teams in the regular season. If you give me a best of seven series and one team has Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and the other team's best player is Mike Conley or Rudy Gobert, Donovan, as much as I like all those guys, that team with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George is winning and I don't care who's got home court advantage. And it's the same thing if you put them up against LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Heck, it might be the same thing if you put them up against James Harden and Russell Westbrook and I'm not even sold on that fit. Like, it, we just know what it means to have true star talent in the playoffs and that's why the Jazz will not win the title because I think this is the quintessential regular season and early playoff team. I think they could contend for the number one seed in the West. Heck, they might contend for the number one seed overall if things break right for them. Totally. But you put them in a best-of-seven series against teams that are a lot more top-heavy, and those top-heavy teams are probably going to beat them. And it would concern me, too, that like the wing defense on this team, like they're going to have to go up against those guys probably in a playoff series. Um, I mean, definitely, if they want to make it through the West, they're going to, at some point, have to wrangle with either the Lakers or the Clippers. And I don't know who on this team is doing an effective enough job of guarding guys like LeBron, Kawhi, PG, even Harden. Like, they'll, they'll cobble together something between Bogdanovich, Ingles, Royce O'Neal, and maybe Dante Exum. Is that inspiring enough confidence? I mean, I know you have Gobert on the back end, but I don't know. It would worry me a bit. And, like, Gobert in the playoffs is just, like, his lack of a postgame really makes them susceptible to switching defenses. And I don't see that changing this year. And I think there's a blueprint for teams that don't rely on interior scoring to just be able to yank them out to the perimeter and... As much as you know that fit, that pairing between him and Derek Favors did not work offensively, it was very effective defensively because if one of those guys did get pulled out to the perimeter, the other guy was still back there ready to protect the rim, and they don't really have that anymore. I don't see them playing Gobert and Ed Davis together uh, because Ed Davis just doesn't... I mean, he has even less offensive polish than Derek Favors had. And with Bogdanovich at the four, I think his ability to actually handle playing that position at the defensive end of the floor on a full-time basis is still very much up for debate. Yeah, and, and look, I think, you know, the beauty of this season, 
and the whole reason why there are eight to ten maybe semi-contenders is because everyone's got question marks. There is no foolproof team, and the Jazz, you know, the Jazz don't have the top-end talent, and the teams that do have the top-end talent, like we just talked about Milwaukee, Philly, the two LA teams, they've got some serious questions. Maybe not the Clippers, but the other three teams in that group have serious questions with depth and, and other, like, roster fit issues, and so... Look, it's hard to win a title. It's going to be hard to win a title this year. And and I think that's why, not to toot our own horns, but I think that's why this, you know, kind of series of features we're doing is so interesting. And just the, the talking points are so interesting because... Because all these teams are flawed. All these teams are flawed. And it really does seem like the type of year where, like, you know, if, if a team like Utah is ever going to win the title, this would be the year. And the teams that have won championships in the past they're very rare but the teams that have done it without having like a top 10 or top 15 player are built very much like the jazz which is that they are elite defensively they are deep uh they are well-fitting rosters and you know they have a lot of complementary skills and so i think the jazz could do it i think it's kind of like an outside shot you know if they stay healthy like my sort of the way that i would define a big three is do you have three top 30 players? There's 30 teams in the league. If you have three guys in the top 30, I see like that as being a good sort of descriptor for what a big three actually is. The Jazz are one of, I think, two teams in the league that could realistically have that this year. I think it's them and Philly. Can you think of anybody else? The counter I'd have to that is, though, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I feel like one of those three has to be like top 10. Yes. So, <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Which of those guys can you see making that jump this None. year? <laughs> None. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where they might run into problems. Yeah. And uh, we saw what it looked like when Donovan Mitchell was basically the lone guy who could create off the dribble in last year's playoffs. That'll be easier this year because Conley will be there. Even Bogdanovich can make some things happen off of the dribble. There's more shooting. There's more offensive firepower. And their defense should still be elite. So that's the case for them case against them they don't have a lot of Conley injury insurance I mean their backup point guard situation is like Exum and Emmanuel Moutier that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence I do think they'll miss favors a lot at the defensive end of the floor and I worry about their lack of power forwards a lot of concerns but also a lot to look forward to Utah yeah could be a great year yeah right. yeah um I, I again I think they're gonna be an amazing regular season team yep uh, just the playoffs is where I would have some worries agreed all right that's four contenders down we will talk about four more next week we'll Continue to talk preseason and whatever twists and turns emerge from this China story next week. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Jessica Sharo. Pound the Rock. <laughs>